399 BC, a certain Athenian philosopher stood in front of a jury of 500 of his fellow citizens and many more who were gathered to watch the spectacle. He was on trial for impiety, for introducing new gods and corrupting the youth. That at least was the specific charge they brought him up on. His name, of course, was Socrates, son of Sophroniscus. In his defense speech, he claimed that he would never commit injustice knowingly, even if it meant death. He cited the example of that famous trial of the Athenian generals who were victorious at the Battle of Argonusae, but then were accused of abandoning their comrades at sea. He stood up to the assembly then and refused to allow a vote to take place on this illegal mass trial, and they threatened his life, but he refused to back down. The other example he gave of not committing injustice knowingly happened a few years later after that, after Athens finally lost the war. At the time, there was a dictatorial junta controlling the Athenian government. It was composed of 30 men, the 30. The 30 had started rounding up wealthy citizens on trumped up charges and executing them, confiscating their property. Sometimes it was because they were afraid these men might challenge their power. Other times, they just wanted the cash, and they started looking around for respectable Athenians they could implicate in their crimes, men who could be expected to support them afterwards, because these people would know that if the 30 fell, they themselves would fall too. And so they summoned Socrates and four other upstanding citizens to the dread rotunda where they were conducting all their business. The 30 had a name that they wanted to cross off their list. Leon of Salamis, a rich and respected man. They told Socrates and his fellow citizens, go fetch Leon for us. We need to question him. And Socrates knew what that meant. And he said in his speech, quote, when we came out of the rotunda, the four other men went to Salamis and fetched Leon, but I went quietly home, for which I might have lost my life had not the power of the 30 shortly afterwards come to an end. And to this, many will witness. The story of Socrates, his relationship with certain leading figures among the 30, and how this all connects with the real reasons he was executed, well, that's a story for another day. Our preoccupation, instead, is with the man who personally put the 30 into power in Athens and kept them there for as long as they lasted. And that man was Lysander of Sparta. Hello there, this is Alex Petkus. You're listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders in order to sharpen ourselves for action in the present. We use Plutarch as our guide, the great ancient biographer. And this is part two of three of the life of Lysander. You know, it's hard to pry into the mind of Lysander or to get a feel for his character, harder than it is usually with most of Plutarch's heroes. And one factor here is that unlike the Athenians and many of the other Greeks, the Spartans didn't really write histories. They didn't write much at all. They didn't catalog the daily doings of their leaders or fill their city with foreign poets. So we get glimpses of the character of the man from his actions, from a chance saying here or there. But another factor here is surely something specific to Lysander himself. That is his very inscrutability 
Our sources make clear in one way or another that though he could be very flattering and funny, he was an extremely difficult person to read. And this gave him the upper hand on many occasions. And to many who dealt with him, it made him all the more terrifying. Because, as we will see, he could also be stone-cold ruthless. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that the events recounted in this episode highlight a very important truth. You know, I do want you to be successful, but you should remember this. Success is dangerous for all sorts of reasons. Lysander's life should make you wary of it. But let's get to the story. When we last left Lysander, he was at the Hellespont, the straits controlling the entrance to the Black Sea. At Egospotomy, at the rivers of the goat in Greek, Lysander lulled the Athenians into a false sense of security, and then he swooped into the Athenian beachhead and he captured or destroyed all but 10 of their 180-ship fleet. And by the end of the day, it was clear there was no way for the Athenians to win this war now. The Spartans control the straits. They can cut off the city's food supply. But the war is not going to end until the city of Athens herself actually surrenders. Will they surrender? Lysander takes their captured sailors back to his base at Lampsacus. And there, he and the leaders of the Peloponnesian allies hold a great tribunal to decide the fate of 3,000 Athenian sailors together with their surviving generals. Many charges are brought forward. Many stories of Athenian savagery. They bring up the fact that the Athenian assembly recently voted to cut off the right hand of any captured Peloponnesian sailor. They bring up the fact that Philocles, the Athenian general who was commanding on the day of the great defeat, was not only the main proposer and advocate of this grisly policy, but was also a man who had ordered the crews of two ships, men of Corinth and men of Andros, thrown overboard to drown on the high seas. Lysander calls Philocles forward, and before the tribunal of his allies, he asks the defeated general, Philocles, what punishment should be visited upon you for championing the policy you did, for having given the orders you gave? And Philocles, not one bit softened by the circumstances he found himself in, replied, Do not pretend to be a prosecutor in a case for which there is no court. Inflict as the victor what you would have suffered as vanquished. And at this, the vote of the Peloponnesian leaders is taken. And they think not just of Philocles, not just of those poor Corinthians and Andrians, not just of their right hands, but of all the hideous fates that the Athenians had sealed over their own prisoners and vanquished through 27 years of war. The Melians, the Histiaeans, the Scionians, the Aegonetans, and many others. Populations exiled, men from the youth up, put to the sword, women and children sold to slavery, desperate fugitives hunted down and executed. They vote death to all Athenian captives, all 3,000. Lysander goes and bathes himself. He anoints with oil and puts on a rich robe. And he was an imposing figure, long flowing hair in the Spartan tradition and a full beard, and then he took up his short sword. And as the philosopher Theophrastus wrote later, 
Lysander personally led his fellow citizens to the slaughter, beginning with Philocles. They did let one man go, the general Adamantus. That was the one politician who had vigorously argued against the Athenian mutilation policy. It was a grim fate for the rest. But across the Aegean, the mood was one of elation. The Battle of Aegospotomy was the beginning of freedom for the Greeks. The Athenians, with their heavy taxes and their colonial oppression, their support of corrupt demagogues and subject cities, and their settlers exploiting confiscated land throughout the Greek world, they were widely hated. Lysander was the liberator of Greece, the man who in one startling stroke brought the full righteous justice of Zeus down upon Athenian hubris, the man who would usher in a new era under the benevolent leadership of Greece's most noble and fair city, Sparta. And now Lysander began the work of actually finishing the war, because Athens hasn't surrendered yet. To others of the Athenians and their allies who had escaped their fate at Aegospotomy, and the many others residing in cities and countries all throughout the Aegean area, Lysander sends out a proclamation. Athenians and their friends found anywhere in Greece will be put to the sword. With one exception, they are to be given safe passage if they wish to return and take refuge in Athens itself. He wants to crowd Athens with refugees to starve them out all the more quickly. And then he implements his other strategy for tightening the net around Athens, around all of Greece. Another proclamation goes out, this time to all of Lysander's friends in the various Greek cities throughout the Aegean and Asia. Now is the time to reap your reward. Fulfill your vows of loyalty to Sparta, to Lysander. Seize control of your city. And Lysander's been laying the groundwork for this plan for a long time. No more democracies, free to put their fingers to the wind and vote to ally with whatever hegemony is the flavor of the week. Sparta, Athens, Persia, Egypt, Phoenicia, themselves. No more. He wants boards of 10 men in every city to exercise absolute authority. You might call these oligarchies, that is, rule of the few in Greek, the oligoi. But for most Greeks, even cities overtly ruled by oligarchies, and of course they preferred to call themselves aristocracies ruled by the best men, the aristoi, even in those cities, oligarchy usually meant a lot more than 10 more like 500 or 1,000 men with voting rights and the Supreme Council, not 10. Lysander's form of government, this extreme oligarchy, required a new word, decarchy, rule of the 10. Even he had to admit the word aristocracy wasn't really appropriate here. These were not necessarily the best men, but they were his men, men he had chosen for their strength, their wealth, their ruthlessness. These were men of great arrogance and forcefulness who he had worked hard to cultivate, charmed into friendship, just like he had Prince Cyrus. They loved Lysander. He drank with them, feasted with them, hunted with them, and schemed with them. As Plutarch says, with disgust, in his appointment of these rulers, he had regard neither to birth nor wealth, 
but put control of affairs into the hands of his comrades and partisans and made them masters of rewards and punishments. But from Lysander's perspective, if, if some of these decarchs had questionable backgrounds or qualifications, that was just going to make them all the more fanatically loyal to him, or to Sparta, depending on who was asking. And Lysander isn't just installing decarchies, that is, panels of reliable local citizens, because, given the violent way they often were coming to power in their cities and the quarrelsome and independent nature of the Greeks, these men were going to need backup if they were going to be reliable servants of Sparta. Backup was part of the deal. It made them dependent and helped ensure that most exceedingly difficult quality to instill in spirited men, even friends, obedience. Wherever he felt it was needed, which was most of the time, he installed a garrison of Spartan-led Peloponnesian troops. And they were commanded by what the Spartans called a fixer, a harmostes, or a harmost. You can think of these harmosts as sort of military governors for whatever area that they're in charge of to match the civil governments supplied by the decarchies. And Lysander must have been proud of his plan. It was something a stodgy Spartan traditionalist like Callicratidas could never have pulled off, let alone conceived of. But something like this was surely necessary in order for Sparta to move into the next phase of its evolution. With Athens tamed and the Greeks united, new horizons were beginning to open in the east. The Persian throne looked like it was headed for a succession crisis, and the old Persian state was weak and sclerotic. Why should it be the Persians holding suzerainty over Asia and its hinterland? Why not Greeks ruling over Greeks? Sparta ruling over the Ionian Greeks? Or rather, leading them as willing followers once they could be made to recognize, eventually, what the Spartans held as a fundamental truth, that the secret to freedom is obedience. Still, Nothing ended up winning Lysander more condemnation from later observers than installing these decarchies. Because critics looked not only at the harsh way these autocratic juntas governed, but also the way they were installed as evidence of their injustice. The installation of the Ten at Miletus was particularly cunning. And perhaps Plutarch was right to see this as one of the moments where Lysander revealed his true character. Miletus, once the home of the famous philosopher Thales, it was a rich Asian coastal city south of Ephesus. And Lysander's friends and allies, who earlier were promising him that they would overthrow the democracy and expel their opponents, well, they were now experiencing a change of heart. They reconciled their differences with their foes in the city, who were the populist Democrat types. The war was over, right? Lysander comes to town, and in some public speeches, he praises them and smiles and warmly pledges to join in the reconciliation. He is so convincing. But after this public appearance, he pulls his former partisans aside and abuses them and reviles them in private, and then he incites them on to renew their plan to overthrow the power of the masses using the pretense of concord to disguise your cowardice? Shameful. This must be done. Haven't we all seen enough now where democracy eventually leads 
the fruits of indiscipline. And so they make preparations. He leaves town and camps nearby with his troops. And when he gets word from inside that the revolution has begun, he quickly marches into town and very publicly arrests the oligarchs and rebukes them for all to hear. He makes everyone think he's going to punish his former friends. And then he encourages the townsfolk and the populist leaders to be of good cheer and relax. Now that he's with them, he's going to protect them from the oligarchs. But it was all a ruse. He wanted to make sure that all the hesitant populist leaders remained in town with their guard down so they wouldn't be able to escape what was coming and cause trouble later. And very shortly thereafter, his oligarchic junta arrests and executes all the populist leaders who put their trust in Lysander. Charming, deceptive, inscrutable, terrifying. And the Greeks were an uncommonly independent-minded people, jealous of nothing more than sovereignty over their own cities. So it was no surprise that things frequently got ugly during this transition period, like at Miletus. On the island of Samos, toward the south, a long-standing Athenian ally, the Democrats preempted Lysander. They stormed the houses of the aristocrats, murdered as many as they could catch, took power, and sealed off their main city. Well, they could be dealt with later. It was now time to sort out the Athenians. Lysander sends word ahead to the authorities in Lacedaemon. It's time to finish the job. The Spartans still have their raiding force in a fort a few miles away from Athens' city walls. King Agis is there. But now they send the other king, King Pausanias, at the head of a large Peloponnesian army. They march north, it was about a week's journey, past Mantinea, past Corinth at the Isthmus that connects the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece, past Megara and Eleusis on the coast. And Pausanias camps the grand Peloponnesian army in a beautiful public park within view of the city walls, a place with sunny fields and large shady trees with a shrine dedicated to the ancient hero Academus. It was called the Academia, and this is the area where Plato would later found his famous school that took its name from that place, the Academy. And from the Academia, the Spartans tighten the siege. Lysander sails in and blockades the Athenian harbor. The Athenians, however, in their assembly meetings have amazingly resolved not to surrender. They know one thing that the Spartans are going to demand and they are desperate to find a way not to give it to them. So to understand what's at stake here, Athens proper is situated in the middle of a wide plain about three and a half miles or six kilometers from its main port, the Piraeus. Now, after the Persian Wars, some two generations ago, the Athenian state spent enormous amounts of money and time building a set of walls that formed a fortified passageway connecting the city proper to the port of Piraeus. It was those long walls, as they called them, that enabled Athens to supply itself from the sea, even at the height of a siege. And 50 years ago, the Spartans even invaded Attica and fought a battle with them to try to stop them from building the long walls. They knew what kind of unfair advantage those walls would give Athens. But the Athenians managed to get them constructed anyway. And for the Athenians, the long walls were a source of hope and pride. And for many Greeks, 
They were a symbol of Athenian imperialism and hubris. The Athenians send an embassy out to King Agus. We'd like to sue for peace. And Agus says, this is not my decision. You must go to Lacedaemon and present your case to the ephors. And the five ephors are the most important elected office in Sparta. King is not an elected office. The ephors serve one-year terms, and they have authority in foreign policy, among other things. And the ambassadors travel south, and they get stopped by one of the ephors with his guards at the border of Lacedaemon. And the ephor at the border asks the Athenians what terms they intend to propose at Sparta. So the Athenians tell them, in exchange for a peaceful surrender, the Athenians offered to ally with Sparta and have the same friends and enemies, and there were some other concessions, but no mention of the long walls. An ephor at the border tells them, you know, no sense in wasting your time coming the rest of the way. If you really care about peace, go back and convince Athens to take the long walls down. And so they travel back, and Pausanias escorts them through the siege lines. Now what hope are the Athenians holding out for now as they look out over their walls at a great army camped in their sacred grove, their city surrounded, and a fleet of Lysander's ships patrolling in front of their ports? They have to figure out something because people are starting to get very hungry. Lysander, though, has other business to attend to. The populist leaders on the island of Samos are holding out still. Samos town is a strong city, and they had a great tyrant in the past, many generations earlier, Polycrates. That was the first man to build a fleet capable of controlling the Aegean shipping lanes. That was back in the days of the famous philosopher Pythagoras of Samos. And so Lysander settles in for a long and difficult siege. But soon he receives, into his camp at Samos, a visit from a prominent Athenian politician, a fellow old enough to have experienced a few things with a few battle scars, but still young enough to be vigorous in his prime, maybe 45. He had an aristocratic-looking face. His name was Theramenes. Theramenes explains that he has just persuaded the Athenian assembly to send him to appeal personally to Lysander instead of to Sparta. Lysander, he convinced them, was the man with the real power. He might give Athens some other options. And within minutes of meeting this Theramenes, Lysander realized here's a man he could deal with, a man cut from the same foxhide. Theramenes and his father had been involved in an abortive coup attempt several years earlier in 411. That was when a number of prominent Athenian politicians, 400 to be exact, briefly took power and tried to turn Athens into an oligarchy friendlier to Sparta. They tried to keep her from destroying herself. And Theramenes made it clear that he was here once again to try to save Athens. Because, in fact, in Athens there were many prominent people who were sympathetic to Sparta, who even thought Sparta was a better governed state than Athens. They admired the Spartan constitution, the character of the men that it produced. Many of these people were friends of Theramenes. Many had been exiled during the war. But Theramenes and his friends still had hope that Athens could be made more rational, seized back from the clutches of the mob of cobblers and bricklayers. 
Theramenes' first proposal was that Lysander forcibly detain him for some time, perhaps a month, perhaps several. That would make the Athenians more malleable as they got hungrier. It would also give him and Lysander plenty of time to lay out plans for a permanent solution to the problem that was Athenian democracy. Clever fellow. Lysander agreed, and they got to work. Theramenes returned to Athens three months later. The old and the weak were starting to die of hunger. The Athenians were desperate. Theramenes told him Lysander detained him against his will. Ha! And Lysander had instructed him that he needed now to go to Sparta, where the real authorities were. And so the Athenians send Theramenes with another embassy. And this time they make it all the way to the sacred precincts of Sparta herself, at the foot of Mount Taigatos in the Eurotas Valley. This time, however, the Spartan authorities have summoned to Lacedaemon representatives from all of their other Peloponnesian allies. The Athenian ambassadors walk into a great post-war supreme council summoned to decide the fate of their city. And at that contentious council, the first question the allies debate is not whether to demand the long walls be taken down, but whether or not Athens should be razed to the ground, destroyed for its crimes, rooted up from the soil of Greece, its citizens enslaved and scattered to the winds, its land left to be grazed by sheep. This is the proposal favored by many of the allies, including the Corinthians, the Megarians, and above all by the Thebans who proposed it. Thebes is Athens's powerful neighbor to the north, its arch rival besides Sparta. Theramenes and the Athenians are petrified. They were not expecting this. But Lysander sent his own embassy to Sparta, men who would make his case, anticipating this. And to the surprise of many present, Lysander's position was firm. This was Lysander who had personally erased several small Athenian allied cities from the map, executing the men, enslaving the rest. But his spokesmen say, Athens must stand, and it will be compliant. Lysander will guarantee it. And the deliberations took place over a few days, as the Spartans were considering a matter so weighty, whose stakes bore on not just their own fate, but the fate of all Greece. And it is said that in the evening, after the Thebans made their grim proposal, the Peloponnesian leaders were sitting at a banquet, and they were a, a few bowls of wine in, and so they started singing songs to lighten their hearts. And a certain Phocian leader started singing a song they all knew. It was a sad song about a noble glory lost, and some of them joined in. Daughter of Agamemnon, Electra, here I have come to your court in the fields. And it seems that before the singer could even finish, the party got more somber. And then someone said aloud what they were all thinking. It was a song by the Athenian playwright Euripides, who had died only the year before. It was from his tragedy, the Electra, a song from the chorus written, as was tradition, 
in the Doric Greek dialect spoken at Thebes and Sparta, and they all considered how unholy a deed it would be to destroy and abolish a city so famous who had produced such men. A few days later, the Spartans announced they've made a decision. In recognition of the great services it had done in the past for Greece, Athens would be allowed to stand. The terms of the peace require that Athens readmit all its political exiles, all of those pro-Spartan friends of oligarchy, that is, and that they take down their long walls. Thereafter, they are to be left to govern their own affairs according to their ancestral constitution. And they are to be allies of Sparta, sharing the same enemies and friends. And thus, Lysander helped bring the Spartans around to share his perspective. You must always identify your friends and enemies with brutal honesty, based on a cold, rational assessment of naturally common and naturally competing interests. And surely it was obvious, he told them, that from here on, the greatest competitor, the greatest threat to Lacedaemon, was not Athens anymore, but rather, it was Thebes. Thebes was a great land power now too, second only to Sparta. They commanded a powerful coalition of states in their own region, Boeotia, the next valley over from Athens to the northwest. And Lysander pointed out that Thebes, the city who most wanted Athens annihilated, was the very reason that Athens must stand. The Spartans could not leave a power vacuum like that open for the Thebans to sweep into. So Theramenes and the ambassadors return. They break the news. And Lysander is there in the harbor with his fleet. King Agus is still outside the walls. And certain Athenian politicians protest. Theramenes promised he would save our long walls. We have to get better terms. And they throw those guys into prison. Athens ratifies the peace the very next day. The war is over. Lysander leaves Theramenes and his friends to sort things out in Athens, and then he goes back east. There was much work to be done. And with so many seafarers and travelers going about, news spreads quickly in Greece. The mood is ecstatic. The end of Athenian tyranny has come. The Spartans have liberated Greece. Lysander has liberated Greece. And it was customary among the Greeks, after a great victory, to dedicate captured armor and weapons of your enemies to the god Apollo at the great Oracle of Delphi, which is in the mountains near Boeotia. And out of the spoils of the Battle of Aegospotami and out of the gold left over from Cyrus's generosity, Lysander sets up a great monument at Delphi, statues of himself and several of his commanders in bronze. Wasn't this a, an occasion worth commemorating? And the monument was later called the Navarx Monument, and it was right at the entrance to the sanctuary of Delphi. And you can see this spot today if you visit Delphi. The Spartan monument towered proudly over the monument that the Athenians had once erected to celebrate their victory over the Persians at Marathon. And there was actually also a separate treasure house at Delphi that was set up around this time by another Spartan ally. And in Plutarch's day, some 500 years later, a statue still stood there, which Lysander had commissioned portraying himself. The statue depicted him with his hair, very long in the ancient Spartan fashion, and a noble beard on his face. Now, it wasn't very Spartan to have your image portrayed in a statue, 
But again, wasn't this victory unprecedented? And also in that same treasury, Lysander placed a gift that Prince Cyrus sent him in honor of his victory. It was a model of a trireme made out of gold and ivory. It was four feet long. Now, when the men of Samos receive the news about Athens, they decide it's time to come to terms and they end the siege and they admit the aristocrats back into the city. And these men, Lysander's friends, these aristocrats that got admitted back, they push through a measure that Samos's annual religious festival in honor of the goddess Hera, it's called the Heria, that it'd be celebrated that year in honor of Lysander, and the religious festival would be called the Lysandria. And scholars agree with Plutarch here that these men of Samos were the first Greeks to have started a tradition that became widespread in the Hellenistic period after the conquests of Alexander, that is, to honor a great man as a god. And Lysander was also the first man to whom paeans were sung, that is, songs of divine triumph, and Plutarch preserves one of these. It goes, The general of sacred Hellas, who came from wide-spaced Sparta, we will sing, O Ie Paian, ton helados agatheas, stratagon ap eurichoru, spartas hum nesomen, O Ie Paian. Lysander even began keeping a poet in his retinue to sing praise of any special deeds that might come up in the course of his business. And did he not deserve it? He was the man who had unlocked the treasure houses of Persia, who had united the resistance against the Athenians, who had ended their 70 years of supremacy over Greece. Now, it must have occurred to Lysander that this was a stunningly unspartan way of being in the world. The Spartan full citizens, the Spartiates, they referred to themselves as the homoioi, that is, the similars or the equals. Spartans were supposed to be the most averse of all the Greeks to what we might call self-aggrandizing behavior. Their training in the famous agoge was supposed to inspire the most ambitious Spartan to obedience, to take his place alongside the rest in the line of battle, to be willing to sacrifice wealth, honor, and of course even life itself for the sake of the glory and good of Sparta. Could Sparta tolerate a citizen, an equal, being so unequal, so superior to the rest, superior maybe even to the kings, Lysander, the Mothox. But perhaps Sparta would have to change. The homoioi, the similars, they were supposed to be fungible, interchangeable. But wasn't the idea of fungibility what lost Athens the war? chasing away Alcibiades as though a man like that could be replaced? Hadn't it nearly brought Sparta to destruction when they replaced Lysander with Callicratidas as admiral? Callicratidas, a straightforward man, a decent man, but utterly unworthy to the task. The man who lost their fleet at Argonusae. All for the sake of sharing responsibility among equals. Was that what Sparta really stood for, the summation of her legacy? Weren't there other, more fundamental principles like excellence, like obedience to that excellence? Well, meanwhile, after a few months, Athenian politics is grinding to a stalemate. The People's Assembly 
concedes at Athens to elect five officers that they are calling ephors, who are supposed to implement their new constitution, whatever it was. And this title was a clear nod to Sparta. Athens didn't have any ephors before. The word in Greek means overseer. But now they too had five. Lysander's new friend, Theramenes, was one of them. Another of these new Athenian ephors was supposed to be a great admirer of the Spartan constitution. He was a former student of Socrates named Critias. And these men at the time were trying to implement a moderate oligarchy, which meant, among other things, restricting voting and political rights to something like 5,000 of the wealthiest citizens, instead of the usual number of voting citizens, which was closer to 25,000. And these guys were claiming that this was the ancestral constitution, the Patrios Politeia, which the Spartan treaty had specified that they could rule by. But then the Democrats in Athens were refusing to make any changes to the constitution. And that wasn't the only thing deadlocked. The long walls were still standing. Incredible. The new ephors send a message to Lysander on Samos. We need you to help us break the political stalemate to finish carrying out the plan. So, a negotiation. As Navarch, Lysander had learned to squeeze as much action as possible into the narrow confines of a year's time. He was the man who had assembled a full 170 ships with incredible speed, little more than a year after the Spartan fleet's disastrous annihilation at Argonusae. Lysander preferred to cut to the chase in negotiations. There's a story that at one point, later on, a dispute arose over borders between the Spartans and the neighboring men of Argos. And the Argives were saying that their case had justice on its side. And Lysander pointed to his sword and replied, The man who has mastered this makes the best case about borders. So Lysander was the sort of guy who didn't like to waste time. He sailed back to Athens with a huge fleet. They would negotiate on the basis of facts. And so with his triremes once again patrolling Athens' harbors, he meets with Theramenes and Critias and the others, and they discuss what to do. Theramenes sends out a call summoning the Athenian assembly, a great meeting of the people, to take place a few days later. Plenty of time for the terror and awe of the great Spartan military machine to sink deep into the Athenians' hearts. And a few days later, in the morning, Lysander goes up on the Pnyx Hill, the seat of the great Athenian assembly, the sovereign Athenian assembly of Athens, the Ecclesia, which seats easily some 6,000 men. And he brings with him several Spartan commanders and a bodyguard of troops. He meets Theramenes and Critias and the others there and the rest of the citizen body. And as the Athenians gathered and sat down, Lysander looked out over the fruits of the mighty empire he had brought to heal. Gleaming marble temples, the temple of Hephaestus overlooking the Agora, the triumphant Agora itself, the marketplace with its courts and its monuments, the painted stoa, the administrative halls. He looked to the right at the sacred heart of the city, the Acropolis, the dwelling place of the ancient kings of Athens, and the glorious crown of the Acropolis, the Temple of Athena, the Parthenon, built on the riches of empire, shimmering in the summer sun. 
This was the most awe-inspiring and magnificent assembly of civic architecture in Greece. No, on the entire continent of Europe. It was built by the fathers and grandfathers of the men he was about to address. He saw the Areopagus Hill, too, the ancient seat of the old aristocratic council of Athens, where the noble ancestors of these men used to sit in judgment on the affairs of the city. That was back long ago, when Sparta had been the supreme power in Greece, as now it was, once again, unquestionably. And when the assembly filled, Lysander signaled with a glance that he was ready, and a great drama unfolded. Act 1. Theramenes Rises There's a proposal that's been made by one of the party of the Athenian ephors, a man named Dracontides. The proposal of Dracontides asked the Athenians to approve a board of 30 men with full powers to draw up a new constitution and govern the city according to it. Theramenes speaks against the proposal. Only 30 men? Why, this extreme oligarchy must be rejected. They have to respect the rights of the Athenian people. Act 2. Lysander rises and addresses the men of Athens. He's flanked by two top Spartan generals. And his speech reminds them of the facts. What almost was the fate of Athens only a few months earlier, when they were teetering on the edge of annihilation. The only reason this assembly is even happening is due to the magnanimous mercy of the Spartans. Lysander is starting to wonder if that mercy was ill-advised. Vote to approve this proposal of Dracontides. Entrust your city to wiser men than you have in the past. Theramenes rises from his seat. He protests to speak as if we are Sparta's subjects. That's compulsion. The treaty specified Athens was to enjoy its autonomy. And then Lysander replies loudly, Why do you speak of the peace treaty? when your long walls still stand. Athens has broken the peace by failing to take them down. Well, there was a stunned silence at that point. Lysander had just not so subtly hinted that a siege, a blockade, a sack, a raising of the city, all of it was justifiably back on the table once again. His ships were already in the harbor. Troops were already in the city. Nobody dared say anything. Act 3. After a pause, Theramenes rises again. He seems strained. Men of Athens, I propose we accept the motion of Dracontides. And many people get up and they start to leave. Some of them think this seems all a little bit too staged, and they can see where things are headed, and they don't want to be a part of this. But enough of the citizens stay for a quorum, and a vote is taken. There are some abstentions. But by the end of this assembly, the motion by Dracontides to appoint the 30 gets overwhelmingly passed. Critias and Theramenes are appointed to the board of 30, and they get to pick most of the names on the list. A council of 30, not so different from Sparta's senate of 30, the Gerousia, and as Critias would frequently remind the Athenian people in the coming months, the constitution of their new ally, Sparta, was widely acknowledged by the Greeks to be the best constitution. From Lysander's perspective, 
Instead of a decarchy, a board of ten, to keep a new subject city under his iron grip, a great city the size of Athens reasonably needed a triacontarchy, a board of thirty. Not all that different. But this time it was ratified by the people, wasn't it? That part was fitting, too. Some of them surely recognized he was saving them from themselves. And as the story goes, the next day after that assembly, Lysander requisitioned a large force of flute girls from the city. This deserved some fanfare. He led the musicians down to the long walls where they met volunteers from Athens and soldiers from the Peloponnesian army. And so the Athenian men began the demolition work on their long walls, and troops in the port burned the Romanian Athenian triremes all to the sound of the flute. And as the Spartans' allies watched, they adorned their heads with flower garlands and they made merry together, counting this day as the beginning of their freedom. Now, one aspect of Lysander's character that started to come out around this time requires a little background to understand. Now, there was a famous policy of the Spartan constitution that their ancient lawgiver Lycurgus had instituted when he saw the way that money corrupts and softens the heart of men, making them traders and financiers and collectors of pretty objects instead of warriors. Not so would it be in Sparta. He forbade the full citizens, that is, the Spartiate warrior nobles, from using any forms of currency except large iron spits. Unlike gold or silver coins, these spits were heavy and ungainly. They were hard to steal or secret away or to pass around as bribes. You couldn't roll around on a big shiny pile of iron spits and pretend to take a bath with them. But they were good for grilling meat, which warriors should be doing a lot of anyway. Now, these spits had very little value outside of Sparta and really not that much value inside of Sparta either, let's be honest. And that was fine because the Spartiates didn't need to do a lot of trading internally anyway. They all had farms where they got their food and Spartans aren't supposed to need luxury and comforts. It was hard to even call these spits money, really. And the Athenian 30, by the way, showed no particular interest in adopting this Spartan policy, in case you were wondering. But yeah, that was the currency situation in Sparta in the past. But now there were Spartan fixers, harmosts, commanding in most of the new allied cities in Asia and the Aegean Islands. And when these Spartans left Sparta and the laws of Lycurgus, there was little to restrain them from getting their hands on sizable fortunes very quickly. Sometimes it came in the form of tax revenues, sometimes bribes, sometimes just taking advantage of smart business opportunities that they wouldn't have had at home. But it was never denominated in iron spits. And the Spartan leaders were starting to enjoy their wealth. And this money was also making its way back to Lacedaemon. And the person through whom the most money of all was flowing was, of course, Lysander. And here we can see one of the great paradoxes of Lysander's character and how people remembered him. Even his harsher critics admit that he was personally quite incorruptible by money. He never kept a drachma for himself. He didn't buy himself a new house or start wearing finer clothes when he rose to prominence. 
There's a story that Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse in Sicily, sent him a gift that he thought worthy of the new liberator of Greece, some costly Sicilian dresses for his daughters. And Lysander sent them back, and he said that he feared that they might make his daughters seem less attractive, as though they needed fine gowns to make up for some deficit in natural beauty. So Lysander directed all of the leftover funds from the war chest into the state treasury at Sparta. And there was much debate at Sparta about whether they should accept these funds. In the past, the Spartans would sometimes bend the rules about gold and silver coins a little bit here and there for the sake of the state treasury. The state needed to conduct business with other states after all, and iron spits were not looked upon with the same reverence in other Greek cities. But now with the war over, this new wealth coming in was really several orders of magnitude greater than anything the state had ever possessed. And so the Spartans decided that they would accept the war riches into the public treasury while still upholding their ban on private accumulation of money. And so the penalty for possessing gold and silver coins was still death. And in fact, one of Lysander's subordinate commanders ended up succumbing to that temptation and the punishment that followed. So even though there were still harsh penalties for individuals, many later observers nonetheless really saw this as the beginning of the end for Sparta. And Plutarch explains why. Quote, They were acting as though it was the coin Lycurgus feared and not the covetousness which the coin produced. They did not remove this vice by allowing no private person to possess money, but rather encouraged it by allowing the city to possess money. Its use thereby acquired dignity and honor. Surely it was not possible for people who saw money being honored in public to despise it as useless in private affairs. Moreover, public practices influence the customs of private life far more quickly than individual lapses and failings can corrupt entire cities. For it is natural that the parts should rather be perverted along with the whole when that deteriorates, end quote. And so despite Lysander's personal indifference to private wealth, he became, whether it was fair or not, the man most held personally responsible for a great shift in ethos in the character of Sparta with respect to its attitude toward money. And what's more, after not too long, resentment was starting to grow against the decarchies, these dictatorial, ultra-oligarchic juntas that Lysander sponsored. And resentment also grew against the Spartan military governors that propped them up, the harmosts, the fixers. It was proving difficult to convince these other Greeks that obedience was the key to freedom. And the 30 at Athens initially governed without a harmost, but after they started to face resistance, they too appealed to Lysander and he sent them one too, a commander with a garrison of 700 men. And these troops turned the Athenian Acropolis into their military fort. Tensions built up. The Spartan Harmost, Calibius, got into an altercation in the streets of Athens with the son of a wealthy Athenian, and the argument escalated. And Calibius lifted his staff to strike the young man, and the youth used a wrestling move on him and dove for his legs and threw him to the ground. The kid's name was Autolycus. He's actually a character in Xenophon's Symposium. And the boy was arrested and thrown into prison. 
Lysander, though, commanded Calibius to release the boy. He told the officer that he didn't understand how to govern free men. Well, that diffused the tension a little bit, but how long could this situation last? Propping up a junta successfully required a lot of help. Not just brute force, but charm and finesse, especially in cities where the citizenry was used to a lot more autonomy. Lysander had plenty of charm, but his Spartan compatriots, well, it wasn't exactly something that you learned in the Spartan agoge. Justice? Yes. Toughness? Absolutely. Obedience? Plenty. But sophistication, flexibility, seeing the creative possibilities in a situation, understanding cultural differences of a subtle kind, these sorts of things that could help you de-escalate or, if necessary, undermine any opponents before they got the narrative on their side. These are qualities that are hard to find in anyone, to say nothing of the ultra-soldier Spartans. The turn in the situation, though, came much sooner than anyone expected. And by the time Lysander heard about it, the situation was critical. At the beginning of their reign, the 30 at Athens had rounded up and arrested all the men who used to abuse the legal system, opportunistic populists who had brought down Athens' best politicians and generals with petty lawsuits and manufactured charges. These were called sycophants in Greek. It means something a little different in Greek than it does in English. And these sycophants, malicious, demagogic public prosecutors, they were the kind of people who brought down Alcibiades and the generals after Argonusi. So many sycophants were executed, others were exiled, and most people were not bothered by this at Athens. Who was really going to miss those unscrupulous demagogues? But then, after the 30 removed their greatest threat, they started summarily arresting wealthy and respectable citizens that they suspected would resist them on the most flimsy charges. Many good men were executed and their property was confiscated. It became obvious after a while that what the 30 were really after as much as anything was more money to fund their operation, to keep paying off the Spartan garrison that propped them up. It was a downward spiral. Many prominent citizens were forced into exile. Others simply fled for fear of their lives. Critias had emerged as the merciless strongman of the 30, and he seemed like he was becoming more and more unhinged as popular resentment grew. Lysander's Athenian friend Theramenes, the architect of the peace deal and the oligarchic takeover, Theramenes had a falling out with Critias. Theramenes was actually trying to get the 30 to restrain themselves. He could see that they were running major PR risks by entering on a reign of terror. But Critias had him prosecuted for treason and executed. Theramenes was forced to drink the hemlock like Socrates later did. But while Critias and the Thirty were preoccupied rooting out their enemies at home, a few good Athenian dissidents were secretly gathering at Thebes. Now the Spartans had sent out an order to all of their allies, and no allied city was to admit any exiles from Athens. And Thebes, on paper at least, was still an ally. But in response... 
to Sparta's orders about exiles, Thebes actually issued a decree that no house in all of Boeotia was to refuse sanctuary to any Athenian exile under penalty of a fine. And if any Athenian or any other Greek were to pass through their territory bearing arms against the 30 tyrants in Athens, no Theban would either see him or hear about it. And so a small determined band of only 30 Athenian patriots, led by a man named Thrasybulus, set out from Thebes in the dead of winter with Theban weapons and Theban food and warm Boeotian cloaks. And they traveled about 30 miles to an old fort perched on a hilltop in the rugged wilderness surrounding Athens. It was an Athenian fortress that some of them had once been posted at on guard duty as young men. It was called Philae, on the road between Thebes and Athens, about 12 miles from the walls of Athens. And on their way, these men met up with other conspirators, men who took refuge in other cities. And by the time they got to Philae, they had about 70. And then by cover of night, those 70 determined men stormed the hilltop fort and killed the guards that the 30 had set there. And the next morning, as they stood on the ramparts and looked out, over the borderland foothills, they could just make out the shape and the shine of the Parthenon. And Lysander, as he hears about this, maybe he marvels at the men's daring or foolhardiness, 70 men against an entire city. But maybe it wasn't so foolhardy because Lysander's position on Thebes had also just proven correct. They were now preparing to challenge Sparta. No question. They already had, really. And that was more dangerous than a few Athenian rebels. The 30 sent out a large expedition to take back the fort on a beautiful, crisp, sunny winter morning. And Philae, again, is about 12 miles from Athens. And they get there. And on the next day, however, as they're preparing to rush the fort, a huge snowstorm blows in and catches them totally off guard. Aid from the gods? Well, the oligarchs make an abortive sally on the fort, but the men inside drive them away. It's bitter cold, and that's a very defensible position. And so the 30 retreat back to the city, covering their heads as the rebel guerrilla patrols follow them and rain arrows and stones down on them. And now word gets out. Thrasybulus and the men at Philae suddenly become the rallying point for all Athenian dissenters, and their numbers start to grow. Lysias, the orator, whose brother was murdered by the Thirty, he personally hires and sends them 300 mercenaries, along with 200 additional shields. And so within a month or two, the number of rebel fighters at the fort has grown to 700, and this has just become a full-blown crisis for Critias and the Thirty. And by this time, the Thirty have actually rounded up and forced a large number of disgruntled, Democrat-sympathizing citizens to relocate to the Piraeus, to Athens's harbor town a few miles downhill from the city proper. And Thrasybulus, the rebel leader, has a plan. Early in the spring, the rebels pick a day and they sweep down into the plain where Athens sits, and they storm a military camp of the 30 just as dawn is starting to break. 
and they kill a large number of the oligarch's forces, including 120 Spartan guardsmen, and they capture some horses too. You need those. And before the 30 have time to respond, Thrasybulus and the rebels rush down 10 more miles in the night and move into the harbor town of Piraeus. And the Democrats sympathizing men in the Piraeus welcome them in. And still running on no sleep, deep into the night, they seize a strong fort on a steep hill there. It's called Munichia. And so within a very short period of time, Athens is now facing a full-blown civil war. And the very next day, the 30 oligarchs, or the 30 tyrants, as Thrasybulus and his friends are calling them, they gather all their troops together and they march down to the Piraeus in battle formation to crush the rebellion. And the rebel forces are now about a thousand men, though. But the 30 still outnumber the rebels in the Munichia fort five to one. And yet, amazingly, with the combined advantages of fighting from higher ground and pure mad determination, Thrasybulus and the rebels defeat the 30 and their forces in a pitched battle. And they kill Critias himself in the melee. And the 30 and their supporters retreat up to the city walls of Athens. And these remaining oligarchs in Athens, they call desperately to Sparta for help. And that was when the Spartans sent in Lysander. It was time to crack down and crush this rebellion. So the Spartans recall Lysander from his duties in Asia and they make him harmost or fixer of all Attica, the vast territory around Athens. And he commands a large infantry force, Spartans and mercenaries, and they surround the men in the Piraeus by land. They cut off all their supplies. And the Spartans even make Lysander's brother, Navark, and he sails in with 40 triremes, and they blockade the rebels in the Piraeus. And very soon, things are looking bad for the Democratic rebels. A few weeks go by. The situation is starting to get desperate for Thrasybulus. He's totally surrounded and cut off. And yet, the rebels keep refusing to come to terms. But then, Lysander gets word that Sparta is sending reinforcements. What's this? Lysander and his brother have the situation under control, don't they? It's only a matter of time. But no, the Spartans are sending a full Peloponnesian army commanded by one of the kings, Pausanias. Odd. They mentioned something in their dispatches about distrusting the Thebans, making sure that the Corinthians don't try anything funny. Probably, though, Lysander realizes Pausanias wants to come and take some of the credit himself for bringing down the Athenian rebels. Kings will be kings, and Pausanias was a very traditional king. But no matter... As long as the oligarchy is propped up and the rebels crushed, Sparta will retain its control of the map of Greece and it will be able to move on to greater things like a Persian campaign. And Lysander will, of course, keep his personal influence in Athens. He still will have friends in charge there. And King Pausanias arrives with his army, with the allies. And now, with the king in the field, Lysander has to defer. The Spartan king is always the supreme commander on the campaign field. And Pausanias sends ambassadors in to the Athenian Democrats at the Piraeus. 
Leave the fort and you may return to your homes in peace. It's a pretty generous offer, considering the circumstances. But they refuse. Pausanias musters his troops and they approach the fort. They have a very close call. They almost fight a battle. But Pausanias backs off. He's being awfully cautious with them. Maybe he wants to wait for the Athenians to strike the first blow to break the treaty. And so Pausanias makes more motions outside the fort walls with his troops. He's scoping out the territory, looking to seal off a few weak points in the siege net that the Spartans have around the Piraeus, make sure zero supplies get in. But then the Athenians make a sally out of their stronghold and they kill a few Peloponnesian soldiers. And then what's at first a scuffle turns into a skirmish and Pausanias rushes up with reinforcements and the skirmish turns into a full-blown fight. And by the end of the day, more than 100 Athenian rebels are dead and a number of Spartiate soldiers. It's a clear Spartan victory, though. But at this point, something incredible happened. Pausanias has the Democrats cut off in the Piraeus. They have no chance of winning this conflict. But... As it was later discovered, King Pausanias secretly sent a message to Thrasybulus and the rebels, telling them that if they wanted their city back, they should send ambassadors to him and speak before him and his war council exactly as he instructed them. And he also sent a message to some dissidents among the oligarchs in the city as well. If they wanted to get rid of the 30 to put an end to this civil war, and keep Sparta as an ally, let them send an ambassador to speak before his war council exactly as he instructed them. The ephors would be at the war council, and they would be able to ratify any diplomatic agreement that the king proposed. And so, over the next few days, Lysander watches in disbelief as King Pausanias and the Spartan ephors who on this occasion happen to be friends of King Pausanias, they negotiate an armistice and then a peace and then a reconciliation between the two parties in Athens, the Democrats in the Piraeus and the oligarchs in the city. Not a surrender by the rebels, no. The oligarchic party that Lysander had installed that was currently ruling the city of Athens under force of King Pausanias' authority, backed by the ephors, accepted to be ruled once again by the democratic constitution that was the law of the land in Athens for generations. The 30 are allowed to escape to Eleusis, to exile. But these men in the Piraeus, who only a few weeks earlier, Lysander had sealed off in their fort without a chance of victory, Thrasybulus and the Athenian Democratic faction are declared winners by Spartan fiat. Now, at last, Lysander realizes this is what Pausanias really came to Athens to do. And how could Lysander interpret it any other way but to see that powerful men in Sparta, men in the Gerousia, a majority of the ephors elected for the year, King Pausanias and it looked like even the other king too, King Agus. They had all colluded and decided it was best for Lysander to be taken down a few pegs. For them, apparently, it was more important not that Sparta control Athens, and there was no question that they wouldn't 
if Athens reverted to a democracy, it was more important to them that Lysander not control Athens. And it wasn't just this. The ephors issue a formal decree backed by the Spartan Supreme Council. All of the decarchies that Lysander had installed in the Aegean and Asia, where his friends were holding sway across the Greek world, they were all to be dissolved, and all cities were to return to their ancestral constitutions. This was devastating. You know, it's worth pausing to think for a minute here. How differently world history might have gone if at that moment King Pausanias had, say, starved out Thrasybulus and the Democrats, had them executed, or just not come at all. If Athens had remained under the sway of the Thirty, would Socrates have been put on trial four years later by a citizenry who resented his connections with Critias and other supporters of the Thirty? Would Plato then have gotten disgusted with politics as he tells us he did in his seventh letter as a result of Socrates' death? Would Plato have gone on to become a philosopher, founding a school at the shady academy where King Pausanias had once camped with the awesome host of the full Peloponnesian allied army? Would Plato have written dialogues, met Aristotle? Or if you're an imaginative student of this period of history, that's only the beginning. You could go on to ask, would Philip of Macedon have risen to prominence? Would there have been even a Persian empire still standing for his son Alexander the Great to conquer? But history, fate, took the turn it did. Lysander had risen high, far too high above his station at Sparta. He was a common warrior, after all, not a king. But then not even a king could have expected to enjoy as much influence as Lysander did, for a brief moment at least. We open this episode with the point that success can be dangerous. Well, would Lysander have been demoted so severely, so sharply by the Spartans if he had been more cautious in accepting honors? Would the 30 have fallen if they hadn't pressed their advantage too far? What fate did members of Lysander's decarchies who had abused their power await at the hands of their fellow citizens? Well, the life of Lysander offers much to contemplate on the dangers of success, but also on how to recover from setbacks. Because Lysander did not lose nerve. He did not quit the state in a peak of rage. He was a Spartan. He may have been humbled, but he knew that there could be no Lysander without Sparta. He obeyed the laws set above him and withdrew back to his place in the ranks. For now. Because Lysander was not done altering the course of history, and he still had many very influential friends in the city of Sparta and all across the Greek world, his name could not be unlearned now and no living Greek of his day was more famous. This setback didn't decrease his resolve to strive for the greatness he felt he was destined for, that Sparta was destined for. Rather, it proved to him that it was time now to put in motion his most ambitious and radical plans of all, 
to change the rules at Sparta. So, join us next time for part three of three of the life of Lysander. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can tell a friend, give our show a rating on Apple Podcasts, really helps us out. Or sign up for our philosophical email list at ancientlifecoach.com. This is Alex Petkus. Till next time, stay strong, stay ancient. Stay ancient.